This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, if Avon Kirk can punch Nazis, we can too. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique podcast. I am Gep, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! This week we watched one of the better and less-known episodes, because everybody knows they did this episode, but I feel like nobody knows what it's about. Yeah, it's a episode that's more known for its aesthetics than it is its substance. Yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons we'll get to that <laughs> this episode is called patterns of force hmm. which is a generic sounding name that could mean anything true uh, uh patterns of force could be say we have a puzzle to solve and we need to like apply a force to various things in a pattern or maybe a timing or something like that and we'd be able to solve it that way yeah but instead it's space nazis oh yeah it's space nazis instead yes <laughs> and not like Oh, look, it's an obvious allegory for Nazis. No, they actually, like, have the swastikas and iron cross, things like that. Yeah, it's just, it, it's just frickin' Nazis. We'll get into why when we go through the episode. <laughs> We've seen good and bad stuff from this writer before. This episode was written by John Meredith Lucas, who wrote up to this point. There's more episodes after this, but up to this point we have seen... His writing in The Changeling, Journey to Babel, Game Masters of Triskelion, and Piece of the Action. Wait, wait, wait. Piece of the Action? That's that's another, like, old-timey uh, theme episode. Oh, it's like there's a pattern. Yes. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. All right, there's too many guest stars to go over, so let's just suffice it to say that most of them were, like, known guest star people like we always get on this show. Nobody was a particular standout, and a couple people don't even have Wikipedia pages. Um, some of their names are like Richard Evans, Laura Noland, um, David Bryan, um, Skip Homier. Yeah, and so on. <laughs> yeah, we've got a couple of people. We've got David Bryan as Professor John Gill, who's one of the main people. Valora Noland is playing Doris, who's our girl for the episode. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even get her name until like way into the episode, which is a little awkward. So mm-hmm. I was like, I have my notes. So it's like, um... The lady person? Uh, this one is so bad because it's just like Nazi planet, weird stuff going on, capturing. Da, da, da. Oh, a girl. For and ju- only one. Just because. Yeah. Okay. This is a little, little confusing. It's just they need their female guest star of the week, I suppose. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, not like, say, two or three or something like that. You know, Mm-mm. just one. Not unless there's like a harem situation. And then it's awkward for other reasons. Yeah. All right. I feel like there's going to be a lot of junk this episode, so we should probably jump in here. All right. Let's, let's do this. But there are like 20 guest stars. This is a big freaking episode. <laughs> the Enterprise is approaching the planet Zeon and Echos. I just love like, We just passed, passed the planet Xenon, but no, we want the other planet. It's like, okay, you don't have to shout about it. <laughs> Uh, of course, uh, Zeon there uh, is also a gas. I uh, should uh, remember that. So maybe they are implying it's a gassy planet? Both of these planets are inhabited. Zeon is an early space-faring, super-peaceful society, and Echos is an anarchic barbarian world, uh, constantly in a state of war. Um, haven't we been to planets like that before? Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. This time it's two different planets instead of like one people super peaceful and the other is super weird. I don't know why it's different planets this time, but because yeah, to, to change it up, I guess. They're looking for a man named Professor John Gill, who is a Federation historian that came to Echos to study the local population, but has been out of contact for six months. And uh, they do draw attention that uh, John Gill has... A uh, personal connection to Kirk. He was like his instructor back at the academy and things like that. So everything about history Kirk learned from this guy, probably. So that might explain some things. Yeah. To get too much farther, <laughs> the Enterprise is attacked by a missile that is actually too advanced for either planet to have made, as far as they know. It is armed with a thermonuclear warhead, but they're able to blow it up because they are, you know, space magic. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the Enterprise is immune to such things as dukes. <laughs> Kirk and Spock equip themselves with subdermal implants that the Enterprise can use to track them when they beam down. Which, is like, why is this not standard? Yeah, that's what, that would make sense, you know? Like, just, just like, you're in the Federation now, here's your subdermal implant so we can beam you up from dangerous situations whenever we need to. Off you go. Uh, in fact, I believe uh, uh, Stargate Atlantis started having that as a thing. Where, you know, it's like, yeah, our people keep getting, like, abducted. Let's, like, make it so we can beam them out of places. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seems like a particularly good idea. They put on what looks like 30s, 40s era workman clothes and uh, beam down to what looks like a 30s, 40s era street corner. Wait, wait, wait a moment. These clothes look a little familiar. Were these the same ones they wore in uh, uh, City on the Edge of Forever? Unconfirmed, but they do look it. Yeah, <laughs> they came back in those outfits, so may as well keep them around. Yeah, <laughs> they're extreme vintage, <laughs> authentic, man. <laughs> they soon meet a man who's running away from something unseen as he falls down in the street and yells for them to hide. Oh, well, oh okay, let's hide. This is Isaac, a person we will run into more later. Mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock hide as they see Isaac arrested by Nazis. Like, full-on swastika armband, boots, hat, like, Nazis. This is a little weird. Okay. This is... Do we time travel, or is this is this what the locals are doing now? Yep, and they keep calling Isaac Zeon Scum. Hmm. So, like, have we gotten the, the Nazis yet? Uh, specifically call him a Zeon Pig. Hmm. Yes. Subtle. Yep. <laughs> This is followed by an announcement broadcast through random TV screens that are placed along the street, apparently for propaganda purposes. Yeah, as you do. They report on how the Fatherland has destroyed an incoming spaceship, presumably the missile they launched at the Enterprise. So I, I guess uh, the invasion's off then, where we're safe, right? We are introduced to Deputy Fjord Melikon. The names in this episode. In my notes, I called him Melons. Because I just I kept autocorrecting it to that. <laughs> And Doris, a young blonde woman who's some sort of Nazi hero. And finally, to the Fuhrer, John Gill. Hmm. Wait a moment, this is the guy we came here to look for. What's he doing up there in charge of all this fascism here? Yeah. It's not like the Federation's ever condoned fascism. Moving on. <laughs> Before Kirk can speculate on why John Gill is on their screen as the head of the Nazi state, they are attacked by another Nazi. But thankfully for them, he's about as dumb as everyone who tries to capture them, because they do the standard look over there and knock him out. <laughs> it's like, oh no, this guy is a Zeon intruder? Uh, he tricked me! Get him! Ah, uh, now I'm gonna punch you. Okay. <laughs> they play Strip the Nazi and give Spock a nice little Nazi uniform. Well, um, Spock, this is getting a little awkward, but okay. One in Rome, I guess. Complete with helmet to cover yeah, the Cover ears. up the ears, yeah. That was convenient, actually. They used this new uniform to trick a Nazi officer, also taking his uniform, and now Kirk and Spock are both in Nazi disguise. And, uh, this is the, uh, the, the uh, Kirk gets the uh, Gestapo uh, uniform this time, I believe. Spock even comments on how convincing a Nazi Kirk makes. Yep. Yep. No one's arguing. Nope. <laughs> they try to sneak into Nazi headquarters. Uh, but Spock forgets to salute a passing officer and gets them both immediately captured. Well, I guess we have to give them points for not being completely clueless mooks here? Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting one. Like, we're going to haphazardly sneak in with no plan. Oh, that didn't work. Yep. <laughs> Wait, our, uh, our bluff skill isn't high enough. Um, I, I guess we have to fall go on our fallback of getting captured then. <laughs> They are ineffectively tortured with whipping. Yeah, when a problem comes along. Spock doesn't even bruise. Like, Kirk's, uh, like, tanking it, but Spock just no-sells the whole thing and doesn't even have bruises. Well, he does have some uh, some uh, green marks where, uh, you know, he's been whipped, because, you know, he's got green blood and all that, right? They are tortured until another Nazi official called Enug enters. He orders them to be imprisoned instead of continually tortured and killed because the guards are doing such a bad job at interrogating them. 
You've gotten nothing out of them, so just lock them up for a while and let them be sore. That's true. None of them have German accents. At least. None of them have the <laughs> dumb, like, Nazi German accent that you would expect from this era of television. Yeah, maybe a good, good thing, because that would make even less sense. <laughs> In the cell, they meet up with Isaac again. Who oh, hi there, Rob. Gives them some backstory on how the Zeons came here to help civilize the Echos. We'll get to that later. Hmm, this, this smells like an imperialism to me. A few years ago, all the Echos started being Nazis, and now they are in danger of wiping out the Xeon. Whoops. Kirk and Spock came up with a plan to escape because they can dig the transmitters out of their skin with dull metal that they pulled out of a bed. Yep. <laughs> and uh, they uh, basically uh, make a laser phaser gun to um, to cut open the door. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the theory is the, the, the crystals they're using held close together and then put up next to a normal incandescent light bulb, bounce the light around enough that it makes a laser that can cut through the bars. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't work like that. Uh, Magic space crystals. Uh, you know, there is, you know, you know, something to be said about uh, light pumping and all that, too, and, and between crystals like that. But your incandescent lights are not going to really help. Well, they free themselves and bring Isaka along as a guide. Right, it's good to have a local uh, who, well, maybe he's not a local. Never mind. <laughs> they make their way to a laboratory that Isak knows how to find for some reason. Wait a moment. Has he been here before? Has he secretly been planted here to, to uh, lead them astray? Eh, they're not doing anything <laughs> interesting. In this laboratory, they find their communicators dismantled and find that their phasers have been sent to another building, so no guns. Well, I hope we remember to grab these phasers before we leave at some point. That'd be nice. Yeah. Svok thinks he can fix the communicators, and Isak leads them out to the street where they go down a manhole into a bunch of caves that is apparently the hiding place of the Xenon Resistance. Excellent. We found some friends, some allies here. Um, I also want to draw attention to how they managed to leave the uh, the Nazi headquarters there. They actually just dress up Kirk and Spock again and put Isaac on a, a stretcher and just sort of carry him out. It's like, oh yeah, we, you know, they're dying in there or something like that. And I should mention, I, I've meant to mention this before we started the thing, but given that this is like the fourth weird little we're Nazis joke that they have in this episode. This episode is light, frivolous, and filled with jokes. Um, I guess it's trying to play into that trope of those wacky Nazis. So now in the Resistance headquarters, they meet their leader, Abram. Abram. Not, not Abraham, but Abram. Yeah. Not Abraham for the not Zion... They're very subtle in this episode. Yes. <laughs> it's extreme amounts of subtlety. I can't even tell what's going on. They agree to let Kirk and Spock stay here and fix their communicators. But while Spock is working, Darius, who we remember from the Nazi hero video, and a contingent of guards accost them. Oh no, the Nazis, they found us in this secret underground lair. Hmm. Clearly Isaac was, has betrayed us by leading them here. They shoot Abram and have Kirk and Spock at gunpoint, but they do their turning the tables thing that they shouldn't be able to pull off, capturing Darius, at which point Abram gets up, tells them that it was in fact all a test to make sure they weren't just Nazi spies, and that Darius has been working for them the whole time. Oh, well, well okay. I guess that actually might explain why it was so easy for Kirk to do the uh, turnabout thing on then. Because if they're not actually trying to kill them. <laughs> this is surprising to a few people because in true resistance fashion, very few members of the underground know who anyone else is so that they can keep information segmented. Mm, it's actually kind of useful. This sort of comes into play later. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. <laughs> Kirk reveals to them that John Gill is in fact an alien. Dun dun dun. Wait, we already knew that. They need to get in contact with them so they can fix all this weird Nazi mess they seem to be in. You know, if only we could talk to him, this would fix everything, right? Now, apparently, Darius can get them into a party where the leadership is about to hear a speech that Gil is going to give them about wiping Xenon out for good. Well, it's convenient there's a party, but bad that there's going to be that whole genocide thing. Kirk, Spock, and Isaac put on... Isaac, Isaac. Isaac. <laughs> I can't even keep this stupid, fake, not-Jewish name straight. Ugh. <laughs> I, I I didn't get catch his name until half with the episode with like half of these names, so I just called him prisoner throughout. Kirk, Spock, and Isaac 
put on uniforms again, and pretend to be a documentary film crew making a movie about Daris. Which, you know, Nazis were pretty famous for their dumb propaganda documentary films. So, so that this actually kind of makes sense. <laughs> In fact, don't have a good place to put this up. This episode actually contains footage from Triumph of the Will in it, in, in like a scene of Hitler with a car. Um, so yeah, it's 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 very much um, a, a fair bit of crossover here. They learn that Gil's speech will be broadcast through a TV for security reasons, it's because no one's allowed to be near him. Conveniently, though, the broadcast booth is through the wall on the other side of the TV. So they can't be near them, but they're near him, just in a different sort of way. He can't be in the location giving the speech, so he's, like, locked in a small room with two guards. Are they worried about him leaving? Hmm, interesting. They see Gil through a window as they distract the two people guarding the head of the nation. Well, they're the guards on the inside of the building. There's guards outside. There's, you know, a bunch of, you know, officers in the other room. Maybe they should have a few more guards still, yes. <laughs> I'd be more impressed if they still weren't taken out by Kirk's hey, look at that <laughs> tactics. Yep. Now they see Gil through a window as he's being positioned in front of some microphones. He's not moving and looks pretty catatonic. Wait a moment, something's up with this. He's not a, a, a furious dictator. He's a, a, a passive uh, person who's not really there, actually. Kirk decides they need to bring down McCoy because he might be sick or drugged. Hmm. To that end, they find themselves a empty cloakroom. Uh, Spock uses his newly repaired communicator to tell them to beam down McCoy in a Nazi uniform. There's some hilarity where he can't get his boots on. It's funny, I guess. I don't know. Well, um, maybe McCoy was just so upset about having to be put in that sort of outfit. And, and uh, no, that's, that's, that's not the joke at all. It's just he, he doesn't know how to put on boots. It's the entire joke. Yep. They have a brief run-in with... Enug, again, who doesn't recognize them from the prison and also mm. takes their very flimsy excuse about McCoy being kind of drunk, so that's why they're hiding him in a closet. Well, that's convenient. Huh. They didn't recognize him. They are too late to get to Gil before his speech, and they all watch as he says semi-randomized sentences and phrases, looking drugged and tired the whole time while the room applauds. It's like there might be some commentary. Yes. <laughs> Here are some platitudes, and uh, they kind of match up with what his lips are doing, but the, his lips are behind a microphone, so you can't super tell. Also, everyone's applauding at what's very obviously random, disconnected, sort of patriotic-sounding sentences. Which I guess actually kind of makes sense for fascism. Yeah. <laughs> this is as cutting as the commentary gets here, people. <laughs> After the speech... Melkon, whose remember is the deputy Fuhrer, there's too many characters yes. in this fucking thing, interprets the speech as an order to launch a final attack on Zeon. So that thing that you said you were that we were going to be doing, we're, we're doing it. Okay, I guess. The crew easily overpowers the guards protecting Gil and breaks into the broadcast room. McCoy thinks that Gil is really, really, really drugged up, but Kirk orders him to give him stimulants anyway so they can talk to him, despite mild amounts of protesting that's going to kill him. I'm not going to complain too much about this guy possibly dying, honestly. <laughs> but McCoy, as a doctor, probably should, you know. There's a brief debate about whether they should use the Enterprise to kill the invasion fleet, killing thousands to save millions. That don't spend very long on it, even though it's probably the most interesting philosophical debate of the episode. Like, well, if we cause this problem by leaving a guy that probably shouldn't have been here in the first place to do all this this crap, and do we do we interfere to prevent people from dying because of that? Hmm. Let's not think about that and focus on everything else. <laughs> Gil wakes up and says that when he got here, the planet was just too fragmented, so he used an example from history, which. Spock agrees that the Nazis were the most efficient state in the entirety of Earth history on which to model a government. So I guess Spock believes the Nazi propaganda then? <laughs> yeah, Spock's like, oh yeah, the Nazis were great. I mean, there was the genocide, thing, but they were great. They were such really the best efficient people. I mean, there was the genocide thing, but they were really the best. Hmm. Wasn't this like flipped around when Khan was hanging out and people were like, yeah, yeah, Khan's great, and Spock's like, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's weird how this is kind of flipped here. 
They decide they need to buy some time while Gil sobers up enough to make a like, retraction speech or something. It's really not particularly clear what their plan here is. But they take Spock to Malkin as a distraction so he can do some rather obvious here's an inferior race, look at me, examine him like an animal, funny Nazi things. So stuff that, uh, you know, uh, was kind of very tropey at this point, um, but is honestly kind of disgusting kind of stuff. And they make make Spock go through it again. Yeah. Because they're racist on this show. They get Gil awake enough for him to go, hey, let's not attack the Xeons. Also, Malcon is the real bad guy. He's been drugging me to seize power. Dun, dun, dun. Let's have Malcon arrested. Yeah. Malcon shoots Gil through a wall, who dies. Uh, oh he well. says, even historians <laughs> fail to learn the lessons of history. In this case, clearly that was the case. Mm-hmm. Gil, you idiot. <laughs> sure, let's generalize all historians. <laughs> you. Isak shoots Malcon, and then Enog prevents the soldiers from killing them all, because he's also with the resistance. Ha-ha! Ta-ta! That's why he didn't recognize them intentionally. Ha-ha! He says, now... They can live the way they were intended to live as productive, peace-loving Nazis. I am confused, but okay, I guess. They all leave because now, okay, so now they've killed the evil leadership and everyone can go back to being peaceful, efficient Nazis. So everything's fine because they killed the one evil leader guy. And it's not the systematic, uh, you know, constructs all around them that uh, empower those leaders, but it's still pr- very much present. So that's how they leave things on the planet. Now we go to the ship, where Spock is confused how Gill would have modeled this whole society on Nazis, despite him being all gung ho for it earlier. <laughs> Kirk says that Gill just didn't learn the proper lessons from history. That the problem with the Nazis wasn't just that their leaders were bad people but that the entire fascist system creates a problem in itself because you give someone that much power and they will become corrupted. But it's fine that we left them on the planet with that system because we killed the one evil leader. Yeah, and now that they're leaderless, that will just solve all the problems and there just won't be another leader that replaces them, right? Despite us kind of explicitly having a couple of the resistance people's like, yeah, we're going to be the leaders now. Also, we hate them and are ready to kill all the Nazis. McCoy chimes in that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Aren't we super clever for coming up with a phrase? Spock lists off a bunch of Earth dictators. McCoy gets angry and Kirk goes, No, we just stopped one civil war. Let's not start another. So yeah. That was patterns of force. Um, uh, the holy crap? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so we got kind of double interference going on here. Uh, we got a historian who is obviously terrible at history. We have people believing Nazi propaganda and then thinking it's a good thing, I guess. Oh, there's so many problems. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's start with the easier <laughs> one, I guess. Yeah. The- the, the Nazis were the most efficient state in history, so it excuses some other crap they were doing was, like, blatant propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're, they're massive resurgence that people cite from, like, they say in this episode. They went from being a, like, war-torn, demoralized, barely scraping by nation to a superpower in, like, four years. Oh, my God. Uh, they didn't. They greatly increased military spending while introducing like rationing and other poverty measures to the general population and also their entire government was based on massive massive amounts of deficit spending that they had to pillage other nations for later yeah it's like yeah we're gonna make it look like everything's great but uh, really we're kind of pushing the edge where just things being disrupted a little bit could basically destroy you know, result in unraveling of society and part of those that those things that requires the system to keep going is to invade other people which is one of the things that happens uh, there's there's actually a somewhat interesting um, economic debate about whether fascism counts as its own economic system or not 
because there's some similarities in fascist systems as far as the economics go, but they also usually incorporate the existing system that was there before into the fascist state system. Yeah, you know, the, uh, you know, there is a certain amount of we, you know, this fascism is being adapted for the terrain that's already present. But you know, once it sort of has its hooks uh, uh, into the system as is, it uh, sort of expands that and kind of pushes the limit as far as uh, abusing what is there and trying to leverage things to uh, help grow that uh, that centralized state power. Yeah. So there's 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 a debate whether it counts fully as its own system or not. Like you know, you have Germany was capitalist and then was fascist capitalist and mm-hmm. like russia started into communism and then was fascist communism mm-hmm. so there's enough similarities that there's some argument that fascism in itself is its own kind of unique economic system and one of the things that kind of uh typifies that is the state control of production either directly or indirectly the fascist state has control over production and that does lead to somewhat rapid growth. We actually see that historically through like the Bronze Age civilizations, which used a system similar to this called palacism, where all of the state wealth was kind of sent to the leading classes who then divvied it up as they saw fit to keep the kingdom running. And you get an actual pretty efficient, uh, can-be-well-run state economic system out of that that grows fairly quickly the problem is it is incredibly slow to respond to change now if you have the plans uh, laid out and you are pushing for you know these sort of marks here that is you, you you've created this system this plan uh with certain assumptions uh going on as far as uh what resources available what you know what uh, the conditions are going to be what the productivity uh that is physically possible is and if something disrupts that that uh, in, in any way, suddenly it's like, well, um, we can't really adapt to this at all because we were not prepared for this sort of disaster here. Yeah, so we even see that in Nazi Germany. They did grow fairly quickly with a mass amount of deficit spending, but you know, countries do that. It's not the complete end of the world if you go into deficit spending. But... As the military stuff went on, there were extreme food shortages. They started with food rationing because of their insular nature that, you know, we'll cut off trade and be a completely self-reliant state, which immediately led to food and consumer goods shortages, uh, which just carried on through the war. By the time the war was ending, the state was going to collapse under its own weight regardless of what happened. Yeah, that's when people don't have anything to eat they get, don't exactly become uh, uh prone to te- uh trusting you when you are telling them to do things and that kind of undermines a lot of the uh you know uh, core control mechanisms of fascism and you get the propaganda both ways everyone was believing the nazi propaganda they were actually incredibly good at propaganda um they literally wrote the book on it and it's it's you know, it might seem like absurd and over the top, but it's absurd and over the top can work, honestly. And something to remember is this propaganda was coming out before the war. Yes, yeah, for years and years. <laughs> like when Hitler and the Nazis were taking power, they were sending out these newsreels and all these things to the United States, to other countries, you were getting basically press releases from Germany going, look how great our government is, oh my god. And they had that whole thing where they hosted the Olympics. Mm-hmm. You know, just this is becoming a superpower and we believe all the propaganda coming out of this country. And, uh, you know, internally to Germany, that's, you know, very much a, you know, uh, you know, you've empowered us and now keep empowering us and keeping us in power and uh, and keep following our rule uh, in order for us to, you know, keep doing this 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 thing that's totally for real good for you guys, right? Um, outside of Germany, then, uh, you know, that that sort of uh, stuff was also sort of uh, fueling, uh, you know, uh, sort of homegrown fascism, uh, fascist movements. It's like, oh, this is, seems to be working in Germany. Maybe we should try this too. It seems like a, a a great thing with all these trains and things running on time. Also, after the war, it's kind of hard for us to remember now. But when the United States and other uh, contemporary nations entered the war against Nazi Germany, uh, all of the you know 
horrible atrocities and things that they are known for now were not common knowledge. These things didn't start coming out until very close to the end of the war. Yeah. Uh, So you got a certain amount of propaganda the other direction, too, because especially for the United States, who waited a long time to enter the war, you're not going to enter the war and be like, well, these guys are a failing economic state that's going to collapse under its own weight given time anyway. Like, you have to like, oh my god, look at this superpower who is rising to challenge us. We need to put all of our force into this. You have to uh, play them up as a credible threat. Which they were, and no one's arguing that. They put so much into their military spending that they had one of the largest militaries on the planet at the time. Mm -hmm. But you get the propaganda coming in both directions. You have like, here is a, you know, credible threat to us at an equal or even possibly greater level to what we're doing. And we need to, this is why we need to put so much force and effort into fighting this. And that kind of stayed after the fact with you, you it's, it's impossible not to see now. Of course we have, you know, you have neo-Nazis and neo-fascists who of course kind of deify the Nazi regime that way, but even people who criticize them fall into this trap of looking into their propaganda and trying to show a certain amount of respect for what they were doing despite trying to criticize them. Yeah, it, it, it kind of comes off really... I'm, I'm not trying to say, uh, you know, like, like cheap, but it, it's, it sort of makes it more difficult to, uh, you know, then trust the folks that are trying to condemn them, which is kind of unfortunate. And this one, this episode managed to fall into like every freaking stupid Nazi trope. Yeah. That. So every time this happens, people always, always, always do this when they're trying to do some sort of Nazi commentary. They'll get their stand in Nazis, which I will admit you don't often see as just here's Nazis. <laughs> Here but are on some a actual Nazis, planet. yes. <laughs> That we that we specifically taught to be Nazis, but the other people, you always, always, always get this when they have a stand-in for the people that the Nazis were trying to kill, because they, for some reason, always seen the need to put some extra shit in there. Like, in this one, in this episode, the Zeons... The definitely not Zion Zeons were an invading force. They weren't native to that planet. They were a foreign power that came in, like benevolently or not. Obviously, that doesn't give anyone the right to go off and try to kill an entire people based on nothing, based on some kind of weird racial superiority idea. But does but does weaken the uh, the argument uh, that. Uh... You know, these people from the other planet were just sort of sitting around doing their own thing, and these guys just decided to become jerk faces. Which is the anti-Semitic German propaganda that they had Mm -hmm. at the time, that Jewish peoples were an invading force that had come in to take over Germany from the pure German ethnostate. So, yeah, it's a little absurd that it's basically just sort of stating the propaganda as the fact here. Yeah, and they do this in TV because they want to show you a clear, easy to understand divide. And anytime you do that, you are basically saying, yes, this was one group of people who were completely distinct from this other group of people who were fighting each other. Not like this group arbitrarily decided to take one group of people inside their own country and demonize and kill them. Because I guess they don't trust people to... I guess internalize that people can just be crappy to each other for stupid reasons. I think it's I don't just, know how else yeah, to explain I it. I think it's just so you can easily create the good guy, bad guy, black and white divisions that we want to have. They want you to be able to immediately look at the screen and go, well, that's the bad one and that's the good one. And I can tell because they've put in clear signifiers that I can look at and immediately recognize so I don't get confused as the audience. Which, for, for better or worse, people need more uh you know uh, uh, media and things like that that is willing to be more subtle than that yeah sometimes it's good to have the very black and white sort of contrastings but when you're trying to uh, uh put the you know, you know put forth the you know, some complicated ideas then sometimes you need to be able to 
play in the gray zone where, yeah, it's it's hard for us outside for this conflict to tell the difference between these people. So maybe this whole, uh, you know, uh, you know, persecution is just absurd on its face. Also very often fall into this weird, it's it's the same propaganda that the Nazis are saying, but they got it wrong thing, which is very weird to me. Because they almost always do some variation on the people that they are that they are persecuting are from a different place and did come in as a quasi invading force however many years ago. But they weren't here to destroy, they were here to help. A little awkward. Um for uh, whose definition of help here? But also like it's just like, oh see, they were right that you know, a Zionist invasion came into Germany however many years ago. They were just wrong in the fact that they were there to be helpful. So, which is kind of an excuse for imperialism of a different sort. It's basically saying, like, these, this was an imperialist invasion, you were right. But it was a benevolent one. Why are you so peeved about it? You should be uh, be happy that people are coming here to educate you for your own good. Which, again, is, like, not a thing. These were people who lived there these were native like german people who were living in germany and were then persecuted for their you know ethnic backgrounds and no other reason mm-hmm. they were not an invading force it was yeah. not some freaking conspiracy it was not another group of people that came from another state yeah these are people that were there for centuries <laughs> uh and you know the, the the whole invasion thing was complete fabrication and yeah, and it's, it's it, we have this this uh, this you know this explicitly different thing in this media in in this and other examples out there that is just so rotten because it's just bundling things up just so badly. And then this other planet, the Xenons were technologically more advanced. One could say wealthier and in charge of the you know money and <sighs> technology because Star Trek doesn't use money. Yeah. You're falling into a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff in this exactly. episode in the people that you're trying to hold up as the like. They also this whole freaking line of maybe by resisting the Nazis, we're in danger of becoming as bad as the Nazis because, you know, it's just going to turn around. It's just going to turn around and then the the oppressed Zion state is going to wind up oppressing other people, which is another fun trope we always fall into. You know that there are people out there that can fight evil and not become it because they understand the the, the core of what they're they're combating. There are people that don't understand that and are at risk for being kind of jerk faces after the fight's over. But there are there are still good people out there, and yeah, just to sort of assumes like, oh, if I am fighting at all, then that makes me inherently evil somehow that's a little absurd and there's so, but yeah there's just this pile of stuff here that it's just so bonkers and wrong in this episode it's it's hard to sort of navigate it with i was like it's like well there's this and then there's this other thing and this is uh, touching on this other issue that's uh, yeah and so you you get the propaganda you got the you know what you know the, the right and wrong and it's just, it's just such a mess that it's hard to even talk about without sounding like an asshole <laughs> Yeah, and there's there's three distinct messages that they go throughout the show because this show's pretty good at d- directly telling you what it thinks the message it's giving mm-hmm. you is. You start with you should learn the lessons of history that even though something looks like it works well, it has some underlying problems that make it actually horrifying. Like, okay, that's not a horrible place yeah. to start. Then you get to fascism works great as long as you have the right people in charge. Uh, and then you immediately switch to actually the problem with fascism, it gives too, one person too much power and that's a corrupting influence. So we got two messages that kind of really, really contradict the first. Yeah, two directly contradictory messages, both of which contradict the third message. <laughs> also, I, I get why the U.S. keeps doing this because... A lot of this Nazi stuff was kind of our fault, but this I this thing that's just like it's just a fascist problem. Like this guy came to the planet, was like, "Hey, you know what's great? Fascism. Let's use that to unify the people 
and create like a, a booming economic system or whatever. And that is somehow inevitably going to lead to racial superiority and ethnic cleansing. Maybe we should uh, talk about what what is fascism? Yeah, I mean, we're not trying to argue that fascism is great, but I don't think that it's going to directly turn into Nazi-style ethnic cleansing just because. Yeah, in fact, uh, the, the, you know, some of the historical examples of uh, fascist states, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, Germany is the one that people are, uh, are most familiar with. But there's also Italy, which was sort of like, yeah, we don't really care about the whole racial stuff. Uh, I guess if we have to, we'll do something. But that's mainly just to not get piss off the Germans too much. Um, and they're like, you know, but it, it was very different sort of focus on what was going on. And that sort of, you know, leads into the fact that, you know, fascist states of various sorts aren't going to be the same as far as their core motivations and outward sort of appearance. It is quite absurd in this uh, particular episode that they're using swastikas, for instance, because there's no reason they couldn't have used a local symbol that would just take the place. You know, maybe even keep the, the, yeah. co the color scheme general design, but, you know, just put a different, you know, lo localized symbol there. It's like everyone will pretty much catch on that's the same thing it's also not particularly important but it did prevent the episode from airing in germany because of their laws about showing nazi symbolism on television indeed um they they have uh, uh some, some rather strict uh, rules on that yeah they kind of did the thing of like becoming fascist was a bad idea maybe we should put some laws in place to make that di more difficult in the future yes and uh given that you know uh you know fascism is uh, you know, has a lot of sort of, you know, always looking back in the in the traditionalism sort of stuff. Uh, maybe that whole this is a thing from the past. They'll uh, fascists the future might seize upon and try to use to propel themselves forward. Maybe we should like clamp down down on that uh, uh, in particular in order to try to discourage that. And you're right. We do need to kind of distinguish because they're talking about fascism as dictatorship, which isn't entirely wrong, uh, but it's a slightly different. Thing. So, like, dictatorship and, and small, like, you know, family-run uh, control states where one person or one family is in charge are similar, but fascism moves into a different governmental territory where, like, a small in-group is in charge. They don't necessarily have to be related. There's not really a direct kind of succession of power through bloodlines and things that you get in kind of other kinds of dictatorships, even though that's... It, it can happen, but it's not necessary. Indeed. But it's it's usually like a in-group kind of party leadership versus out-group everybody else sort of thing. It's usually uh, has a lot of misinformation and propaganda involved, which, you know, dictatorships can have, but it's not a necessary feature. Mm -hmm. Also, you usually have a lot of kind of military police sort of... Uh, you know, military state thing going on in a fascist government. It's a, it is a kind of wiggly term. It's not really easy to pin down exactly what it is. It's kind of a you know it when you see it sort of government. Well, we should uh, poke at some Umberto Eco here then. Mm. Mm. Like uh, that whole uh, essay, uh, Ur Fascism from the nineties. Um, so, uh, I, I, I've read this, uh, previously, but, uh, I do have sort of the, the close dose version of, um, of, uh, the, the, the main points that for these various, th uh, items, uh, even having one kind of leads into a fascist sort of situation, but they more, uh, more often pop up in, uh, as a group or in some, some number. Um, so, uh, so what, what are some things that tend to happen when you got a fascist uh, you know, system or state going on here. Uh, number one, cult of tradition. Uh, on our Echoes planet, do we got a cult of tradition going on, Gepwin? Uh, sort of. <laughs> Just kind of not, not the local tradition, though. <laughs> it's unclear. They introduced a cult of Nazis, so I suppose. And uh, depending on sort of how the, uh, the education on this planet works and, uh, and all that, uh, you know, it could be sort of a Yes, this is the tradition, uh, the history, the whole time. It just we're it just happens to be from somewhere else, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and propaganda could uh, potentially sort of uh, generate uh, all sorts of myths, and uh, yeah, that could that could definitely happen in a in a fascist state. So this, that one's a maybe. All right, item number two: the rejection of modernism. Do they got that going on here? Oh, that's 
they don't go into enough of it to tell. <laughs> All right. So uh, possibly we're going to say that uh, maybe, but um, I guess the. Uh, I suppose this shows pretty pro-modernism, so you can assume the people they're painting as the bad guys would not be. Generally, yeah. I'm, I'm still going to leave that one as maybe. Um, how about the, item number three, the cult of action for action's sake. So to take action and to do things rather than to just sort of uh, sit back and consider things for a little bit. Seems to be they have the whole invasion, death to Xenon, etc. So you know, they're, they're definitely looking to do things not to, and they keep talking about that we're clearing out the cities and taking care of all the, uh, the, the, the people in, you know, in our midst. And now we're going to take the fight to them and et cetera, et cetera. And very, very broad, bold pronouncements that they are uh, doing things and they're doing them now. So yes, I'll, I'll definitely put that one as a yes myself. Um, disagreement is treason. Uh, do they have disagreement is treason here, Gepwin? Meaning does anybody who criticizes you is treasonous? Oh yeah. Uh, Again, you don't see enough to know. You would assume. I I would actually argue yes, because uh, the, uh, the 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 the, yeah, the character uh, Doris, uh, she mentions explicitly that she got uh, sort of her promotion by turning into her own father because he was uh, critical of the state. That is true. Yeah. So uh, so uh, so I would argue for yes, but you for, you you are free to disagree and not be a treason uh, a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, fear of difference. Do they got that going on? Yes, they do. That's basically the entire episode. Yep. So that's a big check mark there. Um, appeal to a frustrated middle class. Uh, possibly. We don't actually see the anyone who's not in the military in this episode. Yeah, which is a little strange. Uh, it was very much, you know, either you are in a Nazi uniform of some sort. Or you're a Xenon spy and you're in civilian clothes. So I guess everyone's in the military now. Which kind of yeah. begs the question, why did the Xenon just put on military uniforms too? I mean, they did, and nobody questioned them yeah. at all. I don't know, maybe, they, maybe they're bad at planning. Anywho. So uh, that one's a big shrug, I guess. Um, item 7. Obsession with a plot. And hyping up of enemy external threats. Or internal or external threats, but... Enemies of some sort. Xenophobia. There we go. Oh, yeah. That too. <laughs> yeah. Xenophobia. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they got a lot of xenophobia here. Yes. Um, Subtle. Yep. <laughs> um, number eight. Uh, yeah, they are, you, 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 are there enemies at the same time very weak, but also very strong? The, the very contradictory, you know, our enemies are powerful and yet they will not be able to stand up against our might. Is that what's something going on here? Seems to be that, again, we don't get quite enough to know, but we do see the contradictory, like, they are weak, horrible people, but also they're our invading force we need to defend ourselves against. Yeah. So, um, so uh, I, I you know, argue it's sort of a, you know, a, a yes, but not, a, not as clearly as it could be. Um, pacifism is tracking with the enemy. Probably. Again, I don't think we get enough backstory but it does seem to be in that general direction. Well, the uh, Xenons are explicitly uh, cast as being pacifists before this whole sc uh, scuffle took on. And uh, uh, Isaac, or uh, I, I, I'm just going to call him Isaac, um, <laughs> was, uh, you know, was like, yeah, I, I used to be a pacifist, but given what happened to me, I guess I can, I can punch a Nazi now. So, Which again is like muddling the thing, because pacifism being equated with being an enemy or traitorous person is a different thing than the people we are portraying as our enemies are already pacifists. <laughs> so it's it's almost like this episode was in part made as a propaganda tool for this fascist state that we're seeing in the episode. Yeah, that might actually make more sense than anything else. I don't know. Do you do you think America in the '60s wasn't trying to be a fascist state? I don't know. I was. Yeah. Hmm. How but, how much are they going to criticize a fascist state in the 60s? Not enough, I'd say. I'm going to play lip service to it, but don't look too close. Yeah, because otherwise you might question authority here at home. Oh, no. Uh, also, we need to keep fighting the communists in Vietnam, and we'll be victorious, but we need to keep sending people over because we have, we're we in trouble. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, it's almost like they're weak, but also an imminent threat. Yes. Hmm. Uh-oh. Hmm. Um, how about uh, Contempt for the Weak? This is kind of similar to the previous one, but yeah, you know, just slightly different. I mean, I suppose they got it with the really, really 
funny critique of Spock as an inferior race. Yeah, this is where a lot of the uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, racial superiority stuff tends to come up with uh, when you talk about fascism, where it's very much a, you know, we need to, you know, uh, purge the undesirables from our society because they make us, uh, you know, weak sort of uh, crap. Um, and, you know, we've already in the previous, you know, previously on this show, we've told, you know, uh, gone through how well, that's absurd. Um, but, uh, yeah, that is sort of one of the, the hallmarks of, uh, fascism here. And, and it's very much on display there in that point. Yes. Um, next item, everybody's educated to become a hero. Yeah. Like they directly say, they call every freaking person in the army a hero to the fatherland in this. Everyone's a superhero. Everyone's a Captain Kirk. Wait a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, machismo, um, so you, know, you get macho and things like that. They got that there? Seemed to be, but who can tell? It's 60s TV. Yeah, you know, everyone's a strong-jawed uh, superhero already, so, yeah. Um, that one's kind of, eh, don't know here. So, uh, next up, uh, select uh, populism. Do we got yeah. that? Yeah, we, we've we've turned around our society using the techniques of the fascism, so that's great for everybody. Ha ha! Mm-hmm. We have just such a amazing, great, biting commentary on populism since the guy's saying obviously random, patriotic-y sounding phrases. Yep. <laughs> as a speech, you know, feel good about these things because I am saying the key words that you like. Yep. Sort of mealy mouth word vomit. I'm having flashbacks to some stuff recently. I'm not sure what's going on. Like, must move forward, not backward. Upward, not forward. Uh, yes. And always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Um, and uh, last item on the list, uh, Newspeak. Eh, basically. So, so what is Newspeak? Well, Newspeak is a concept from 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's saying that you redefine language to better suit the needs of the state. Uh, yes. No, certain words are emphasized uh, other words are eliminated others are created the general idea being that if you control how someone speaks you can control how they think about things because you eliminate the language for them to even consider dissent indeed so uh, everything kind of falls into place automatically with uh, less effort from those in power so yeah that's you know uh, so uh, we, we hit a, you know in this particular episode this this uh, planet echoes here definitely is hitting up more than just a few of these and so it's Definitely more than just sort of the trappings of the fascism. It's, it's, it's pretty much actually is. So that's my argument. <laughs> I mean, we're definitely hitting fascism in the thing. They would have to teach the, like, othering-y hatred stuff. Like, the, the argument in the thing is that Gill creates fascism, and he wants to use it for good. But then one of the other dudes is like, oh, I could use this for evil if I just take over and demonize these other people. Kind of, well, we have some of these elements of fascism, but we want more. And kind of portraying, I don't know, the it bothers me that they turned it into an absolute power argument. Yeah. Because one, uh, like a fascist, like the fascist leaders have a large amount of power. That's not really the problem with consolidation of power. Mm-hmm. It doesn't immediately turn to corruption and horribleness because of the corrupting influence of power itself it turns to corruption and things because you have consolidated power into one person who can start to consider what's good for them to be good for the country there is a um, how the power is used and there are certain structures and situations that encourage it to be misused which is often the argument that you get is like you can't consolidate power absolute power da, da, da. but even like we've talked about this absolute power myth before mm-hmm. and uh yeah I've, I've just kept hearing more and more people talking about this uh since then that it seems like power doesn't like um you know corrupt power emphasizes it amplifies what's already there in the person i was hearing this interview very recently with um Robert Caro, who wrote The Power Broker and really huge, super well-researched biographies about powerful people and how they, you know, get into and use power. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, from all of his research, he basically came to that notion on his own that, you know, power doesn't corrupt. It emphasizes what's already there. 
say, a lens, in other words. So you do run into this kind of who would seek power problem. Mm-hmm. Often, especially in what we've set up for modern societies, the people who seek power are not the best people. It's, uh, it's like there's certain incentives that encourage the uh, kind of people to seek power. But if you have something like this, if you have a, you know, one person in absolute control of a state like this, no matter how good or well-intentioned or well-meaning this one person is, they just can't account for everyone. It's going to be slow to change. It's going to be difficult for them to, you know, meet everyone's needs. Having this one tiny seat of power, you only get one perspective on what's going on. Having more input from a more expansive uh, cross-section society is uh, then going to be more responsive. On- yeah, the more you spread out power, the more you get stuff that's going to help everyone because everyone's perspective is getting put into the decision-making. Kind of get, coming back to that uh, point about uh, you know, selective populism, you know, the, 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 the twist the fascists would use is to say, okay, I believe you on this in very much quotes of believe there um and i'm going to totally represent your cross-section in society and you are also the totality of society now so i am now you have absolute power and then you just hope no notices well that doesn't even matter if anyone notices you can you are literally redefining society as the people who are doing okay therefore everyone in society is doing great Exactly. And that's not what reality is at all. (laughs) And you intentionally leave out, like, especially the Nazi ideas that were based on a lot of eugenic policies they got from America. Mm -hmm. Uh, They full on believed that uh, social welfare and the helping of people was going against natural selection. So if someone's not doing well, not only can you define them out as a citizen who doesn't matter for your little fascist in-group, you can define them out as human entirely because they are just a weak person who deserved to die for the betterment of the species. Beyond even, like, just outside of society, well beyond, you know, any consideration. Which is why, if you want to critique fascists... Leave it to fascists. If you want to critique Nazis, you need to address your freaking eugenics problem, Star Trek. Yep. <laughs> in fact, this idea that they don't go into it, but they heavily imply that the only people that they're going after are the Xeons, who are a different species. They're from another planet entirely. In this kind of state, you wouldn't just be going after them. You'd be calling out the quote-unquote weak people from your own society as well like you would have groups of echoes who were being segregated and taken out people with mental problems and disabilities were also being culled out by the nazis now um though i haven't uh finished watching the series i did watch uh, a certain amount of way through uh man of the high castle uh, uh the, the the tv series on the amazon there uh and uh they very very clearly sort of point out that yeah the the nazis here are very much not just killing jewish folks they're killing anyone that is you know uh, you know, doesn't beat their super specific ideas on what is acceptable and what's not in fact there's a, a subplot about one of the you know big nazi people who is informed that his son is, has a like a genetic uh, uh, disease that's going to uh, basically make him disabled later in life and so it's like hmm uh, do I end his life now, or do I, you know, have him suffer through a more uh, torturous existence uh, later, sort of stuff? And that's not here at all in this episode. <laughs> and we do need to point out that yes, the Nazis did like demonize and and round up and kill other people, not just Jewish people. But mm-hmm. their rhetoric and rise to power was so steeped in anti-Semitism itself that it, you have to like. That's why people mention Judaism more because the actual like rise to power was steeped in a lot of anti-Semitic traditions, not to like belittle that other people were in fact killed. Mm-hmm. But it's an important distinction to draw. Uh, yeah, there's you know various ethnic groups uh, that just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, like Slavs, uh, Poles, Ukrainians, things like that. Uh, you know, you know, gay and lesbian folks the disabled, uh, people with different political views uh, or different religions uh, beyond uh, even uh, uh, Judaism. 
uh, you know, there's, there's a whole smorgasbord of folks that uh, weren't as exterminated in mass as, as uh, Jewish uh, people, but were definitely targeted as well. I think right now we're just going over the same ground again, but yep. this is just the problem that you hit when you try to redefine this story as one ethnostate versus another. Yeah. It's one fascist ethnostate versus a benevolent ethnostate. You still are running into the same problems when you're talking about it. Mm -hmm. So stop. But if you're going to make something that's a critique of Nazis, it needs to be a critique of Nazism. Yes. Not a critique of fascism generally. If you want to do a critique of fascism generally, take a very different route. Yeah, make up a fascist state. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Do it. You can you can still have the boots. You're allowed to have the boots and still make up your own fascist state. Yeah, you know, the boots and the, the funny uh, military titles, uh, like maybe goal or something like that. Hmm. Oh, yeah, but don't, don't even get me started on fucking DS9 and its space Nazis that we're supposed to pal around with and feel sorry for. We'll get to that a lot later. Yeah, let's just all forget about the whole genocide thing. They're fun space lizards. Mm. Yeah. Star Trek has a fascism problem. Oh, but yeah. No one talks about it. Whew. I'm exhausted. Do you want to move on to something else? Yeah, I think we should move on to something possibly lighter, so maybe it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, it's time to tally up the points and uh, figure out who the, today's winners are. Uh, the uh, various questions and physical challenges have gone forward, and we now have our today's winners. Our first winner is the uh, you know is Isaac and uh, his crew of Xeons uh, uh, for uh, working against the fascists and other uh, uh, Nazi sort of folks here. They get the Antifa OG award. What do they win, Gipwin? I, they need some masks and a better logo. So it's just you know, the branding. You don't have any branding. Also, hmm. don't ally yourself with Kirk. It's a bad idea. Yeah, it's probably going to uh, kick uh, 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 bite you in the butt here. Um, cause you know, I, this a spaceman who is associated with the guy who started this whole uh, fascism thing on your planet. I'm not sure you could trust him, honestly. Hmm. Anywho, <laughs> our second, um, uh, award goes to Melicon for faking Gil's speeches uh, via trickery and drugs. And it's the, it's a fake award. What does he win? Hey, when's the book Propaganda by Edward Barnwise, which is an actual book written in 1928, kind of, you know, just before some of the Nazis rise to power. So uh, maybe he'll make some interesting use of that. Hmm. Our third award is the Awkward Cover Story Award, which goes to Kirk and Spock for their various attempts at bluffing, including the ones that just get totally ignored. Like, what, what are you guys doing? What, what, what even is this? What do they win, Gepwin? Kirk and Spock get the space rabbit foot, because they're just, their bluffs are just so lucky that they ran into every resistance leader. Indeed, and they managed to not get shot in the process, as their uh, various uh, shenanigans here. Also, hmm. how many, how much of this army is resistance leaders for them to have not noticed any of this? I don't know, about 30%. <laughs> Our final award is the What Prime Directive Award, which goes to John Gill. Because seriously, what the hell, guy? Seriously, what, what are you even trying to do? You're the worst history historian in all of fiction, I think. Like, just screw off, guy. What does he win? John Gill gets his tenure revoked. About damn time. He doesn't deserve it. Also... Who is John Gill? Damn it. <laughs> Libertarians are striking again. They're promoting fascism once more. <laughs> I'm done here. I'm out, Gepwin. Oh. Well, I hope that you all enjoy your prizes and your fighting fascism. Except that whole, like, don't become fascist storyline. So you're not allowed to fight fascism unless you become <sighs> the monster. You fight some kind of BS like that. I don't know the galaxy's favorite game show <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm not gonna listen to such battleship propaganda we got to get a fade out here get one out. Uh, i don't i don't even think it's it's a there's another 
another Shakespeare reference in the next one. I don't even know hmm, what this the, is. Yeah, by, by any other name? Yes. What is a what is a rose? Like what is a bird? We just don't know. Would it smell as sweet? I hope so. Wait, what do birds smell like anyway? Uh, depends on the bird. Okay. <laughs> There's a species of auklet that smells like tangerines. That's kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. Also, auklets are tiny, cute little birds. You should look them up. They're like tiny little, like puffin-looking things. Um, how do you spell that? I think it's A U K. A U K. All right, that's that's where we are. Oh yeah, yeah. They got like this uh, sort of nose beak thing going on here, mm-hmm. and they smell like tangerines. Fascinating. So it's also the birds that like spray foul-smelling things out to avoid predators. So yeah, run the gambit. So they they smell good and bad. Birds of diversity. Excellent. This is a good distraction. Thank you, Kepler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I've never heard of this. Distress call, uncharted planet, beam down, finds a humanoid male and female. And uh, something about invaders from another galaxy again. Another one? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, something also about geometry? Some sort of, I don't know... Third power sort of dimension here. Hmm. Spock places himself in a trance. They cross the galactic barrier. Uh-oh, someone's going to get superpowers and they'll have to kill him again. Sweet. I hope it's me this time. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, the... The Kelvins reduce all personnel except Kirk, Scotty, Spock, and McCoy into chalk-like blocks. It, it, it's, it, it, you're saying that the this, this spaceship is it's not just a... A big truck that you can put Starfleet personnel on. It's 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 a series of cubes. Yep. Also, isn't that like the first episode of Red Dwarf? Uh no, they turn into piles of uh, tasty, uh, tasty dust. Yes. <laughs> I don't. None of this. I can't even make heads or tails of this Wikipedia synopsis. So I don't know what to yeah. say about this. <laughs> so we'll figure it out what's next time. Whatever. Yeah, we're tired now. We're yeah. exhausted. Yeah. yeah. Uh there's just so much in this episode that was just bonkers. Ah, oh, Kepwin, save me. Uh, so you can find out how much fascism we have to deal with next week. <laughs> Join us on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. How many aliens from beyond the galaxy is it now? Jeepers! have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>